Let's move over to 3 John. <clears throat> 3 John, we're going to look at verse 2. 3 John, verse 2. The title of the message is Health and Wealth. Proper perspective on God's heart for us. The proper perspective on God's heart for us. 3 John, verse 2. The Apostle John is writing and he says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Lord, help us as we study your word. Two things on this passage about which I'd like to speak. One, the concentration of prayer and then the content of prayer. John is, is known as the apostle of love. And it's been, been a moniker placed on him by church theologians and, and historians because of the way he's, he writes his gospel and the three epistles that he penned. The whole concentration is about love. And, and we're not quite sure why he had this bent more than the other apostles. Everybody had their own emphases. But John was, was intentionally about amplifying the love of God and the love we needed to have for one another and the idea that if we didn't love each other well, it was a reflection on how we didn't love God well. He's the one who said that. If you do not love your brother who you can see, how can you say you love God who you can't? <laughs> and so we understand him to have this, this, under, this understanding, this revelation about what the love of God should look like and how we should portray it. Maybe it was because he at the cross was kind of artificially but theologically with great significance joined to somebody that was not his blood, wasn't a relative. Of the seven things that Jesus said on the cross, one was just about Mary, his mother, and John, the disciple. As he's hanging in great agony on the cross, Jesus looks at his mama who's there, and then Mary, the mother of James and John, who was there, and then John. So John's mama was there, and, and John had run the night before when Jesus was apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they, they took his cloak from him. So he, he kind of went out with fewer clothes than he came in with. But he came back. All the disciples scattered, but he came back. I don't know what the other ten did. We know what Judas did, but I don't know where the other ten went. He came back to the cross, which was so courageous. Because the same people who had seen him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before would have been able to see him at the cross. And everything about the idea of apprehension would have come to him, saying, boy, I, I could be up there in a minute if they recognized that I was with him there. Courageous. And as Jesus is looking at his mama, in the middle of his pain, his greatest agony, he's still thinking about us, people, others, not himself, which is outstanding. And nobody was suffering more than him. And nobody had suffered more than him. And nobody would ever suffer more than he did on the cross. And in his great pain and agony, not just the pain of the, the nails in his hands and his feet, not just the pain of the crown of thorns on his head, not just the pain 
of his back being filleted by being whipped all night long and his face being disfigured from the beatings and people pulling out his beard. All of that physical pain was hard, but the hardest was taking the pain of our sin, the consequences of our misdeeds. That on top of the physical pain, he was still able to think about other people. Like, wow. May we somehow develop that when we pick up our cross and not complain and not cry to people and say, it's so painful, it hurts, my circumstances are so hard, I can't believe that God would require this of me. Let us be like Jesus and think about others as we're going through our pain. He looked at his mama, realizing she needed help. Joseph was gone. Daddy was gone. We don't know where he went. We think he probably passed, which was not unusual for uh, um, uh, marriages, that you would have very young widows and... Uh, uh, husbands that had, had passed, reason being, generally speaking, older men very, married very young women because they had to earn enough money for a bride price. And that would take sometimes a long time to earn those resources. And you could be 35 before you earned enough money to secure a woman's hand in marriage by paying her father to do so. Well, you're 35, you want to make sure that you can have as many kids as possible so you marry as young as possible. Mary was somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 or 16. I realize we think that is unconscionable today. But please, let's not deploy our standard of morality upon what happened in history. Be careful about that. Sometimes we can and we can do it accurately, but sometimes we are misappropriating what is righteous. That happened and it happened with regularity. Well, what that would mean was when your son became 30, Mary was somewhere in the neighborhood of 45, 46. Joseph, 60-something, and most men did not live beyond 50. So we think he passed. We don't have any record of, G of, of Mary having another child. Now we do have record that Jesus had brothers. But you have to understand that the Hebrew and the Greek don't have a term for cousin. It doesn't exist. That is a Western idea. So the brother of your father who has a son in Hebrew and Greek culture, it was called your brother, not your cousin. So it's possible that Mary or Joseph had a brother or a mother, brother, mother a, a brother or a sister who had a child that could be described by us as a first cousin, but then by, be described by, by being a brother. And so when we say his brothers followed him or his brothers were with him or his brothers would not be with him, Probably cousins. And the reason I say this is because what Jesus does at the cross kind of confirms it. If there was another blood brother to Jesus, it would have been a half-brother, but still a brother of the same mother, then I don't know that Jesus would have had to align Mary with John. And from the cross, he says this, Mother, behold your son, pointing to John. Son, behold your mama. And he basically said, Mary, adopt this boy, and you adopt her as your mama. Why? Because Jesus would not have wanted to leave his mama alone. Somebody still needed to take out the trash. Somebody needed to do the heavy lifting around the house. Somebody needed to cut the grass. Somebody needed to do the repairs around the house. It would be irresponsible for Jesus to go without caring for his mama. He was a great son. And because 
We don't see him saying that to anybody else. And indeed, saying it to him makes you think that there wasn't another blood brother around. Yet, we see John joining with Mary as if he were her son. Church Antiquity gives us the idea that Mary moved to Ephesus at some point in her life. Well, who do we find in Ephesus? John. Why? Because he was caring for his mama. All that makes you think that what Jesus did at the cross was more than just a relational tie between a mother who is not blood to a new son. More than just a relational tie, but what love looked like to him. How it was redefined to him. What commitment looked like. And this man now had to, had to, had to think larger than just his own immediate, immediate family. He had to hear what Jesus said from the cross as being super important and beyond the barriers that blood would bind. Now we go by what the blood of Christ binds. And thus we see, maybe, an enlargement of the idea of what it means to care for one another who don't have your last name, loving people unusually, caring for people, whereby it might cost you greatly that they might benefit. John was a lover of people. And so he starts off this note by saying, beloved. <laughs> and the word there is agapeto. It has the, 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 the root word, agape, which is the God kind of love, but then it has a suffix, peto, which says, the one upon whom, the object of, and we put those two together and call it beloved. And when he's saying it, he's trying to do his best to describe what God thinks about him and what he thinks about him, what, what he thinks about them, as he is beginning to describe what God thinks about them. Beloved. He wants these people to know how much they are loved by God. And I don't know that any of us know how much he loves us. I don't know. I mean, I, I know, but I don't know. On this side, we know. But when we see him, the book of Revelation is pretty specific about how he presents himself to the crowd of people, the angelic beings, all of the, 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 the chorus of history of the saints. We see a lamb on a throne. And he still bears the scars. There's something about that that makes all of heaven say, there's no time limit to our worship. They just keep going. They do not reduce the intensity because of what they now know love looks like. This one here loved me like that. There is no barrier to revelation. There's no ambiguity to understanding. We see it from a heavenly perspective without any clouding. And it makes people get on their face and stay there and take whatever rewards God may have given them and give them back. Because they are unworthy of receiving them. And that the only reason they got them is because he made it possible. So the elders that are there, says 24 of them, all have crowds. Represented probably of the 12 elders of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. 
All of them got crowds because they were the leaders of people and they did what they needed to do well. And God placed on their head these crowds as saying, I honor you. I think you did an absolutely fabulous job and this is recognition of it. And then they say, wait, <laughs> we could have done anything without you. They take their crowds and they throw them at his feet. Now, I think this is a, this, this is a movie that, that keeps rerunning. Because <laughs> Jesus says, but, but I'm giving you the crowns. No, boom. But, but I'm giving you the crowns. No, boom. <laughs> it just keeps going. And nobody gets tired. There is something about an unhindered view of how much God loves us. That inspires us in ways like... We can't be inspired here, though we should. Because here we are plagued with questions of, well, if God loves me, why am I going through this? If he really cared, why'd that happen? If he's, if he's all-powerful, why didn't he stop that? Where is he now? Doesn't he know I'm suffering? And all of these questions begin to, to etch away, chip away at our understanding of how much he loves us. And it's wrong. It's wrong. This life and the enemy does everything it possibly can to let you know how much he doesn't love you. How he doesn't care. What he should do if he does. Redefinition of love. And thereby our passion is reduced. Our desire to want to worship him and come into church is minimized. Our love for his word is depreciated. And we're just going through life, waiting for him to prove once again how much he does by his next miracle, his next provision. And then we'll tip him. Let you know, oh, thank you, Lord. Because we actually believe we deserve much better than what we've gotten. He hasn't loved us as he should. Here, John starts off with, beloved. I beg you, never let anything that happens here begin to make you question how much he cares for you. I was talking with somebody the other day <clears throat> who was asking those questions. If God is so good, then why does bad happen? And I said, well, listen, I, I get it. I wish bad didn't happen either. I really do. But, but he, with, with great compassion, can I, can I present to you another perspective? Because I, I'm not, I don't have a whole lot of question as to why, why God doesn't allow as much good as we want. My question is, how come he doesn't kill us? I am so wrong. I have lived so poorly. I have committed so many sins. I've hurt so many people. I don't know why he doesn't kill me. Except he loves me so much. So my question is not why more good doesn't happen. My question in heaven will be, how did you not let bad happen so often? Why was I not judged for everything I did? You are so kind and so merciful. You let me continue to breathe. I want you to know I'm grateful for your mercy because I don't deserve it. 
I experience the love of God every day just by doing this. Because I don't deserve to breathe. When we think we deserve better, we accuse God of doing less. And nobody has loved you more as evidenced by the fact that John said this. The other apostles knew it, but John is the one who coined this phrase. For God, he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life for he came not to condemn the world but to save it. That phrase there ought to help you understand that if he does nothing else for you ever you should never question his love because he's already done so much. Beloved, John says. Beloved. He wants the people to understand how much God cares about folk. Then he says, I pray. And the word there for pray is not the word that is usually used for supplication and petition. That is the word prox exumai. Pros exumai in the Greek. Here he just uses exumai. Now it doesn't diminish the idea that he's trying to talk to God. But it does amplify the idea that he is putting himself into it in such a way that it's now about wishing things rather than just talking to God. So it's not a perfunctory prayer. It's now saying, my soul is so engaged in the request that I'm hoping that this happens for you. Not just talking to God about it. I want it really bad. It means I wish this for you. In wishing, he's throwing his whole heart into the passion he has for the church regarding what he's about to say next. Every fiber of my being wants this to happen for you. He says, I, I pray that you may be in, 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 that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. Prosperity and health have been resisted by most of the body of Christ, primarily because the concepts have been misused to describe a gospel that is not full in its presentation. A health and wealth gospel, as it has been characterized, which pretty much makes God your servant, so that now you can be prosperous and you can be healthy and it doesn't incorporate the covenantal principles of sacrifice and preferring others' needs and laying down your life for your brother and using the resources you have to advance his cause. It doesn't employ any of those. It just says God is for you so much that he wants to serve you by making you very wealthy, having a bank account that's big, having a retirement that's secure, and making sure that your body is not broken. It's all about you. That version of the gospel is wrong. It is wrong in that it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you. It is wrong in that it skips a whole lot of other stuff about his care. How he cares about us. God does want to provide for you. 
Jesus said it in Matthew 6. Do not worry for what you will eat or what you will wear or what you will drink. Look at the birds of the air. They don't store into barns, nor do they work. Yet your heavenly Father provides for them, and they aren't concerned at all. Don't worry about what you shall be clothed with. Look at the, the, the flowers, the lilies of the field. In all of Solomon's glory, the wealthiest man on the planet who has ever been, Bill Gates carries Solomon's briefcase. The wealthiest man who has ever been. Solomon in all of his glory does not compare to that grass. Yet God is tomorrow going to allow the grass to be thrown into the furnace. Don't you think he's going to much more care for you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, you, don't be concerned about what you will eat or drink or wear, but seek first the kingdom of God, and your Father will provide all these things for you. Amen. So God's provision is supposed to be unwavering in our understanding. But the stuff that he, he chooses to provide us with is that which we must now steward well. It's not just about us. He provides because he's a daddy. And we, we will find ourselves in the midst of lack questioning his provision. Thinking, well, he's, is he asleep? Is he busy? Is he thinking about some other problems in the world? I don't seem to be the focus of his attention right now because I'm in the middle of, the, of lack. I need help here. We begin to question his love and his provision when we have an experience of lack. But we should not question it. Then that's when we need to be most strong. Anybody can begin to believe that provision is supposed to be secured when it's always there. You don't need any faith for that. If it's always there, you need no faith. But God is trying to get more than just provision to you. He's trying to make you grow up so that you can be more for him and for others. So the, the, the temporary lack is not sustained. It's simply a moment for you to express your faith and believe that even though I don't see it, I trust him. I trust him. Even though I'm not realizing it, I know what his word says. So I choose to believe. Now, when you do that and then you begin to see God provide, all of a sudden you've grown up a little bit. Circumstances don't have any effect on how you believe. And now you're, you're in line with what Paul says and that you see these things, but the things that are unseen are more real than the things that are seen because the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, are eternal. Therefore, we put our hope in the things we cannot see because they are there with God and he has provision on the way. We just haven't seen it yet, but we trust that it is coming. When you are like that, there are very few circumstances that sway you. You, you not only can deal with your stuff, you can take everybody else's doubt and unbelief and say, no, 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 don't worry about it. God's going to provide. And it's not just hope. You know. And in this world, we need that kind of faith because the world's going in the opposite direction. There's nothing about this world that is in line with the will of God. You're not going to find this flow of provision and encouragement every day you go into the office. People are trying to pick you apart, give, you re give them reasons to why they can't give you a raise. Folks are trying to compete against you. Everything in the world is going in the wrong direction. You have to have faith just to survive occupationally and relationally. You've got to look at your marriage sometimes. You think your marriage is in difficulty. It's on the rocks. You've got to say every day, mm -mm, my God called us together. 
He called us together. He called us together. I'm going to believe. I'm going to pray and fast and believe that the Lord is going to do something here beyond what I see right now. You got a child that's a little bit wayward who needs to come to New Year's Eve, by the way. Just let you know. That'll help you. But my point is this. You got a child who's wayward. You're doing everything you possibly can to try to hem them in and build boundaries around them. And it's not working because the more boundaries you build, the more they break. That's where you don't need to be more controlling. You need to be less controlling and say, Lord, I can't do it. I know you can. No, I'm going to be here wherever you want me to be. What you want me to say, I'll say. But I trust you that this one here has, they're a gift from Almighty God. They're a gift from you. And I believe this arrow is going to hit its mark of destiny. You need faith like that. Where does it come? Sometimes in lack. Where now you begin to believe things you don't see. God wants you prosperous, but prosperous so that you can effectively build his kingdom, not so you can just get another yacht. And I'm not against yachts. If you got the money for it, enjoy. I ain't mad at you. And take me out every once in a while. I ain't mad at you. I'm just saying that if you've got a lot of resources, a lot of them need to be used for the kingdom. You don't need to live as a pauper. You don't. You don't. But you need to live generously. Are you listening to me? I had somebody come to me who, who got a big paycheck. I mean, and a huge contract. And they are always had tithed. Always had tithed. Never missed a tithe. But now they had all this money. They came to me and said, Pastor, you, do you think I really need to, do I need to continue to tithe? Because now the tithe is like really a lot. And I'm talking about millions and millions of dollars, seven figures in this thing. You know, that's a lot of money given to. I said, I know, I, I get it, I get it. <laughs> L- let me tell you a story. There was a man <clears throat> who was in a church and he was in the landscaping business. He was an employee and uh, he was making about $15,000 a year. And he got to his pastor, he said, Pastor, there is no way I can tithe on 15 grand. I got three kids, I, I just can't do it. And the pastor said, well, I I understand, but hear me. You can't afford not to tithe because God is going to to, to bless you. And 10%, he says, is his. He says, bring my tithe into the storehouse. It's his money. So when you are not tithing, you're taking God's money. You don't want to be on that side. You need to tithe, and he will provide for you. The man walked out of the office thinking, okay. So that year, he tied $1,500. Next year, he got a raise. Within three years, he had his own landscaping company and was making $150 a year. He came back to the pastor and said, Pastor, I'm making quite a bit of money, and I'm grateful to God. He's given me these opportunities. But, you know, $15,000, that's a lot of money to give to the church. The pastor said, I understand where you are. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would reduce his salary <laughs> so it gets to the place where he feels comfortable. He said, stop, stop, don't, don't, don't pray that prayer. Don't pray that prayer. God wants you prosperous, but he wants you to do the right thing when you get it. Be generous. Be crazy generous. Be stupid generous. Not dumb. I ain't saying doing dumb stuff with your money. But you understand what I'm talking about. Stuff that doesn't make sense to anybody except you and God. 
and then be in health. There's stuff in the air. <laughs> we can't get away from not trying to be sick. Nobody, when, when somebody realizes somebody's got the flu, nobody's going to their house saying, ah. <laughs> if we're trying to get away from this stuff, running from it, wearing masks, social distancing, isolating, nobody wants to be sick, but it's in the air. It's just every place. And listen to me. You are breathing in pathogens that don't make you sick but are dangerous to your body. You don't even know it because your immune system's fighting them off. You don't get symptoms. Nothing happens because your, 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 your whole body is geared toward fixing what's coming in. The whole world is messed up. It's sick. But we cannot live in a way where we don't communicate with people and relate to people because we're called to be in this thing. We're called to be a part of it. Uh, what my exhortation, my previous one just now, was not anything that somehow was going against guidelines that have been permitted. I'm just saying I can't do ministry without connection. At some level, I can't. Now, online, it works, but it's not the best. Having said that, hello. <laughs> Glad you're here. But it's not the best. The best is when I can look at somebody and lay my hands on them and pray for them. That's the best. And we have had to work with less and seen the kingdom of God still advance. And for that, I'm grateful. But that is not my goal. And I'm still in compliance with everything that is said to be right. But I, I have a different mindset about how we what forward looks like and what the, the, the end should look like. I have a different mindset. And I am not near as, as fearful about things around me because I've done some stuff that uh, helps me have confidence that my God is going to help us. I've partnered with his grace. Now, what I'm about to say is true, but it is not that which should be somehow described as endemic to us or somehow God treating us special. When this pandemic hit, we, we prayed and fasted, me for a long time, that you would be safe. I'm not John. He, he's an iconic apostle. But if I can just put the principles that he used in place, maybe I'll get some of his results. So, beloved, we as a staff have prayed that you may prosper and be in health. We've made it a part of our life. It's not something we do every once in a while. It's a lifestyle. We've given up food for this. And God has not answered us because we have sacrificed but we have heard him better as a result of the sacrifice. Therefore, we can pray better because we've heard what his will is like. That's all fasting does. It doesn't twist God's arm to, to now do your will. You understand better what his will is when you fast because everything about fasting is, Lord, I need you more than my food. I need your direction more than mine. And so I'm giving up that which I need in order to get what I can't live without.
I need my food, but I can't live without you. So I need you more than that, and I'm letting you know that. Now that puts me in a position where my spirit is more in tune with his will so I can begin to pray proper prayers that protect you. The benefit is this, and I'm grateful to my God that we have not had to do one funeral in two years as a result of COVID. Not one. I'm not as good of a prayer whereby some of y'all did get sick. Sorry. I wish my prayer was that effective. I got sick. <laughs> but nobody on my staff has had to do a funeral as a result of COVID. Nobody. Now listen. It's the mercy of God. It's not because we're so good. It's not because I'm on point. It's the mercy of Almighty God. But when we participate, like John said, a, a, a leadership participate for the benefit of his people, God seems to show up much more often. Amen. And as I end, 2022 is going to be better. Yeah. Hear me. It may not be better circumstantially at all. But that has nothing to do about the benefit God wants to give you. Nothing. Because our prayer is that you would prosper and be in health so that you can give yourself to the kingdom as you should. Because it's really hard to give what you don't got. And if you are constantly on the mend, Always trying to figure out how to get over something. It makes it really, really hard to give of yourself. And so we are praying for God's health to be your portion. So that you can give what others don't have. Strength and encouragement. Lay hands on the sick and see them recover. We are praying for that. And we are trusting that God's mercy will guide your path. His goodness will follow you all the days of your life. Your staff cares about you deeply, deeply. And that's how we pray regularly. Father in heaven, please give us, give us all the passion to pray like this for the people who are close to us, parents for their children, spouses for their spouse, friends for their friends. Help us to pray like this. Thank you for caring for your church. Thank you. Thank you, oh God. We know we are nothing. We know we're nothing. But in your hands, we become tools you can use. Help your church to prosper in such a way that others can benefit. Help your church to be healthy in such a way that their strength is not diminished so they can serve well. 